certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. How was the DNA evidence so widely contaminated? Today, a top scientist was asked to please explain. Welcome to Day 54. Natalie, Tim and Damien with you. Tim, this really was a second day of embarrassment for Path West, wasn't it? Yeah, two days in a row. And uh, I, I think, just from my judgment, it's probably a little bit worse than yesterday because we got two more exhibits that we'd, we'd sort of had been flagged in the opening but we actually heard about in detail today which took it to seven all up um, and we're not just talking any case obviously we're talking about the case and we're talking about different exhibits we're talking about both Jane and Kira um, and in one case we're talking about a completely unrelated case that has somehow been cross-contaminated with um, this case so yeah, uh, it, it, was, it, it was an uncomfortable couple of hours, I would suggest, for Scott Egan on the stand today. But he did his best um, to explain how it could possibly happen and why it could possibly happen. Um, and in one case, how it could be him that had contaminated a sample. Yeah, I mean, that's extraordinary. The, the guy on the witness stand has also got contaminated DNA in the sample. Indeed, yeah. Um, dating back to 1997, so when he'd, just, he'd only been at the lab about a year as a lab assistant at that point. Um, so he wasn't doing intimate, um, you know, proper DNA analysis, if I can put it that way. But he was preparing um, materials and samples to be tested. Um, and that's how he explained how he thought his DNA would have got on one of the exhibits that was were tested many years later. Damien, what do you make of this last couple of days and and the extent of the contamination that we've seen? Well, it's quite breathtaking. Like, and one of the things that um, would would arise in everyone's mind, I think, is um, Tim was just using the word that uh, Mr. Egan had said he, he thought. He, you know, it's an interesting word, isn't it? Thought. Well, we're not looking for what you think. Well, it might be all that we have, but what we need to know is what we know. And what's become clear over the last couple of days, and I'll just remind everyone that I'm not there in the trial. I'm just basically, I have the same information that everybody else has. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that have the same view, that it seems that there's a lot of unanswered questions. And un unanswered questions in this environment is unhelpful to that person that has to make the ultimate decision it just becomes another grey area that they've got to deal with which is unhelpful but that being said we are in a this is what we've got this is what we're dealing with I think you're right the word breathtaking is the right word because it's also in the con context of the case that we're talking about and this case is such an important case that to find such high levels of contamination is staggering it's it's interesting that you say that it's such an important case. Um, it's it's important because so many people are interested in it. It's important because of the length of time that we've been waiting to get to a point where we can have some of these questions answered. Um, it's not so important as to be more important than other murder cases or cases where people um, have been victim to crime. But what this does do, potentially is highlight to the people of Western Australia and Australia and um, all around the world is at, at where we're at with our DNA samples. And um, 
I couldn't speak to what was happening internationally or um, nationally, but like I said right at the outset, it's breathtaking to think that right in our backyard, this is what's unfolded. And the question begs, is this unfolding in other jurisdictions as well? Mm. I think yeah. it's trust as well, Nat. I mean, as, as, as an accused person or as a person, as just a taxpayer who, I mean, this is a government-funded um, lab. I mean, we're all paying for this lab and have been for nearly, um, you know, more than 30 years. You trust that the people that are tasked to do this very important work, very exacting work, very scientific work, very forensic work, um, can do it without jeopardising um, any case, as Damien says, any any murder case or sexual assault case. They're all important, all very important. Um, but this case, and maybe it is going to take this case and these examples that we're just about to go through to highlight um, the... That, that maybe the trust is, is, is not as good as it should be and, and may, maybe we need to do something to ensure that it gets to a level that we'd all want it to be at. That's right. And, and we're talking, obviously, you know, we have to make allowances for the fact that this is work that was carried out 20 years ago. But at the same time, these people um, were being told what the cases were that they were working on. There would have been a high degree of scrutiny and you would just imagine that, you know, you would be doing everything in your power knowing the circumstances to get it right. um, Nat, just in relation to that, we have to make allowances and it's a phrase that we use often in life. Um, But what I would say to that is if a person who was innocent of a crime was convicted and sent to jail, they would not accept and make an allowance. And if a person was um, guilty and they were set free or acquitted of a charge, then the victims would not accept the allowances. However, that being said, I guess that's the position we're in at the moment where as taxpayers, as Tim so rightfully points out, we we commission certain people in certain roles to do certain things. And what the taxpayer dollar should do is make those people accountable to us, the taxpayer. And when I say us, the taxpayer, Tim, I mean um, not necessarily the people in the labs who are doing the jobs, because obviously, as Nat had pointed out, you would hope that they were doing everything within their power to do the best job they could. But somebody has to um, cross-check those roles and where the people are fulfilling them. Um, and, and that's where the taxpayer dollar kicks in, I think, is, is the people who are, are not actually literally working in the labs, but the people who are over, overseeing the work to make sure the work achieves what it's meant to. Mm. And ironically, Damien, cross-checking was exactly why Mr Webb eventually left Pathwest, because that was one of his roles as one of the lead forensic scientists at that lab. Um, and uh, two inquiries, in fact, found that... Um, that he hadn't been doing those cross-checks as, um, as he was supposed to be doing. But as I said, as, was, as we're just about to go through, um, there, were, there were more mistakes um, much earlier on in his tenure that um, could turn out to be much more, uh, much more important. Tim, That's could right. I just ask a quick question in relation to Mr Webb? I, I'm, I don't know too much about um, his tenure or any, anything like that. Maybe mm-hmm. some of the listeners are the same. Do you know what he, the exact time period that he was at Pathwest was? Um, well, I know he left. Uh, he eventually left in 2015, um, and uh, as I understand it, he'd been basically at the lab since day one. So you're, you're talking a, a, a career spanning at least 20 years, um, and for a long portion of that, he was the man 
in charge basically he was a reporting site most seniors reporting scientists um overseeing peer checking peer reviewing supposedly um so yeah for for a long for a long time he was basically the boss or the man and and is he did do we know why he left i mean i mean it's obviously quite common knowledge here in west australia but for for a lot of listeners they might not know we might not be in a position to say yeah just very briefly um uh, the dpp sent out a, a a startling letter um, mid to late oh no it's actually early 2016 actually mm-hmm. um, to as I understand it pretty much every criminal lawyer in, in Perth um, informing them is that Mr Webb had left Pathways he'd already gone by that time um, because he an in, internal investigation had found that he'd, he'd, he'd um, had four major breaches of, of, of his role most of them, or in fact all of them at that time, um, over peer reviewing, peer checking. So as we've heard during the trial, um, you do a test, you do another test, you analyse the results and then you get one of your colleagues to analyse the results just in case you haven't made a mistake. And Mr Webb was supposed to be doing that and he wasn't um, in various cases. Um, that was found to have been proved. He left. There was then a government-commissioned um, inquiry into that because the interim meant that every criminal lawyer in Perth had basically been asked, if you think there's an issue with one of your cases, um, contact the DPP. And that included very high-profile murders um, and, and at least nine cases from memory were seriously looked at because DNA had been a crucial part of that um, and, and potentially had been put at risk. Actually, eventually, as I understand it, no, there would be no criminal convictions overturned because of that particular, those particular instances. But it did cost Mr. Webb his job. It cost Pathwest their reputation. It cost the taxpayer a hell of a lot of money because there was a government commissioned report into all of that, which anyone that is interested can read online. It's very interesting reading. Um, and we are now, again, whether they like it or not, we are now again questioning Pathwest's um, uh, performance because of what's emerged in detail in the in this trial in the last two days. Yeah, well, it might be helpful now for everyone if Tim we could just go through each piece of evidence that was contaminated by who and how it was contaminated. If in fact you found that out today, yeah, well, we did. Nat, we found out a, a lot more detail because Mr. Egan was asked about it in a, in a lot more detail. The contaminations span both Jane and Kira exhibits um, from both of them and different exhibits as well, not just the same exhibit. So the first one um, that was tackled in court today was an intimate swab that was taken from Jane, um, which was shown to have a mixture of at least two contributors. Now, most of these were picked up, I have to say, by Cellmark in 2017 when all these samples were sent off to the UK for extra testing after Mr. Edwards was arrested. Um, that came back as uh, a mixture of Jane and a chap called Stephen Daventhorin, who um, avid listeners will remember was the man who found the knife um, near Jane's body. Mr. Daventhorin's um, now deceased. Um, and we also know that Mr. Daventhorin gave a test sample, um, a, a reference sample to Pathwest at that time because he, he was obviously closely involved in the case. Another, a second intimate swab from Jane um, was um, tested and found to have Laurie Webb's um, DNA on it, um, a sample that he had tested himself in 1996. 
Um, a twig from Jane's uh, crime scene, um, labelled RH21, was tested, and this is this is the the real um, um, important one in my mind because this has a had a was found to have a DNA of a of a victim of a completely unrelated crime, a female victim of a completely unrelated crime on it um, when it was tested by Cellmark, and that was uh, that was one that Mr. Egan had a lot of explaining to do this morning. How did he explain that? Was he asked to explain how this could have possibly happened and and was it in, in the lab or where? Mm, yes, it was. And he was asked questions by the prosecutor and then Justice Hall came over the top and, and really grilled him on it. He was asked how this could possibly happen and his, his explanation was his term consumables, which Justice Hall said, what do you mean there? He means tubes. Test it, tubes. Yes, or they're small tubes, actually. So they're not the long test tube that most listeners would... They're smaller plastic tubes that are spun into the, in the centrifuge when the DNA process is being done. And it would appear that the same batch or the same box of tubes was used in both these cases. Um, extractions were done, and f- somehow he said a handling error. That was how he described it. Somehow a piece of DNA or biological material from one of the tubes has got in another tube and... That, that's how the crossover has occurred. So RH22, which is another um, piece of vegetation that was found at James Crime's, Jane's crime scene, that was found to have the DNA of two Pathwest scientists on it, um, uh, Alex Bagdonovicius and Louise King, who we've talked about previously. So um, And they, they had both been involved in the um, getting ready of this exhibit, and they somehow both contaminated it in the process. Um, this is the new one that we heard about today, Jane's fingernails. So they were J- RH33 and 34. So they were fingernails that were found at Jane's crime scene, belonging to her, but not necessarily on her body. I think they might have come, become detached in the decomposition process, but they were collected anyway, um, tested. Um, and uh, Laurie Webb, his DNA was found on both of these. The interesting thing about this one is he, at no stage, according to the documentation, was he ever involved directly in the testing of those nails. But somehow his DNA has come to be on them. Uh, the expla- explanation there by Mr. Egan today was that Laurie would have been in or about the lab um, at the time. They were either being examined or extracted. Then we move on to Kira. Um, so there was an intimate swab taken from Kira. Um, and this was the one that Mr. Egan had managed to contaminate somehow. At that time, as I said, he was a lab scientist. He received the items and then he prepared this item for testing. So he was getting the tubes ready. He was getting the swabs ready. He was getting the instruments ready. And then lastly, another um, Glennon exhibit. This is a branch from her crime scene. Um, And Louise King, or Louise Taylor, as she was known then, um, she tested that sample for DNA in 2003 and somehow um, left her own DNA on it as well so it's a catalogue of errors that um, that no one at Pathwest should be proud of and uh, and certainly Mr Egan um, was asked some questions about it today but he'll be asked a lot more when Mr Jovic gets his turn next week Was he asked about his own contamination and how he thought um, that might have happened. Did they go back and look at it and, and he said well you know where did this happen? Well given the the tyranny of time as we've talked about Damien the, the, all they have to go on really is the documentation and the, to be fair the documentation was pretty thorough I mean they knew who who was testing what at exactly what bench and at what time which is fine um, because you can just get to the bottom of, of how or when the DNA might have got there but all Mr Egan could, t- could say about his personal um, experience today was 
that having looked at the documentation that's that's the only time it could have happened so that's when it's happened how it's happened right it's 23 24 years ago so you know he'd be he'd be guessing um, and you, and uh, and you're not supposed to guess on the witness stand. You're supposed to give a a, a, a reflection and a direct memory of. And he didn't have one, but what he did have was the documents that showed when he touched it. Tim, just in relation to RH21, just for you, for people's ponderings, mm. if there's a twig found from the bur- uh, from the burial site of Miss Rimmer that contains DNA of another victim. Am I understanding that correctly? Mm, correct. No, uh, so that's RH twenty one. Yeah. So that's that's the victim. So the, I've, I should probably make that clear. Is that the, the victim? The sample wasn't the contaminating DNA wasn't actually on the twig. It was on the it was it was on the extract that they'd taken from it. So we go through. You go through the swabbing process. You swab that twig for any biological material. The swab's cut off. It's placed in solution, and the DNA is extracted through chemical processes. And it was in that. It was in that. Uh, sample the extract DNA extract that the contamination was found so it wasn't actually on the stick so that eliminates the possibility that that victim that that eliminates the possibility that the DNA suggests that the victim the unrelated victim was at the scene where the twig was correct okay so but what it shows us is that the the DNA is not really exposing the full truth Mm. Well, I mean, there can be no other conclusion to be drawn than than how does someone's DNA get on there? A female, um, it's and the way Mr. Egan described it today, this was this was the one that was actually picked up in Pathwest before it went off to Cellmark, but only five years after it had happened, uh, two thousand and seven. So uh, originally, this was reported as a, a lab error or something when they came to um, process the results of this. They went back to it five years later and looked at all the results and realized possibly what had happened, ran it themselves through their own database, and that was when it was discovered, oh, right, it belongs to this person because they would have had this profile sample of this this unrelated victim. But they still sent the, I suppose it's through transparency, they then knew that cont- sample had been contaminated had logged it themselves had looked at it themselves but then still sent it to Cellmark in 2017 and that's when the results came back so um, I I suppose a a little tick there for being sort of open and accountable knowing what they were going to get back Um, but it still took them years to find it within their own processes and they're still really they had some sort of explanation today but not you know not a real fulsome one as to how it could have happened in the first place and Tim, I think you, you mentioned it, but really I think what is so interesting about it is that it was different employees working on different cases and the examination between the samples was three days apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the, exa- the, the examination of the, ori- the unrelated victim was on the uh, four days, uh, three working days, I think Mr. Egan said, and there was a weekend in between as well. Um, so that was the examination. So that's the, the when you actually put the exhibit on the bench with your gloves uh, on, and you look at it and swab it and do all the rest of it. So that they happened um, f- a few days apart, and then it would appear that the the extractions were run it from well certainly the tubes were from the same box so all this work is being done in close proximity to each other geographically and in time, and somehow 
the tube has been reused or it's, it's not been cleaned properly or some, something's gone on that has left some piece of the biological material from the victim in it and then gene samples gone in and that's where the contamination But you're assuming that. Well, I am assuming that. Because you don't and know. So, and, so, and, and more to the well, point, well, so the path point. west because th- th- these things aren't filmed all they've got is the documents and the dates and the times to go on and a supposition of well, how could this have happened, when could this have happened. Um, and, you know, it, it, that's that's what we got today. Whether we get any more detail when Mr. Jovic has his turn next week, I'm not sure. But this is, as I said, this is the important one because this is, this is basically what Mr. Edwards' defence team is saying has happened. His samples were already at Path West from 95, from the rape, and they say... What's to say, if he's not there, that that sample hasn't become in contact somehow with Kira's fingernail samples, and that's how it's got there. And that's the doubt that they want to raise. Yeah, I mean, it does not sound good, but at the same time, we have to remember that the crucial samples, the samples that the prosecution say do contain Bradley Edwards' DNA, are not contaminated. Well, that's that's true. Um, And... What the prosecution are going to have to do, I think, is prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there is no way that, that, that Mr. Edwards' samples from 95 and Kira's samples from 97 never shared the same bench, never shared the same box, never shared the same shelf, never shared the same room if they could help it. That's what they need to show to, to, to try and distance themselves from from these contamination events that have happened. So, Tim, how long is this trial going to go for? (laughs) Well, that's a $64 million question. Well, because that's, I mean, given what we've seen here in these examples that um, we're talking about this afternoon, there's a multitude Mm. of possibilities Mm. that could have, I mean, like I said before, you're assuming, we have to draw an assumption that this is what happened in the lab, mm. but it could be something else. It's, um, it's, we're certainly in a difficult position with this. Yeah, and we haven't even got to trace DNA yet, or, um, uh, you know, sort of a contact DNA, uh, the possibility of, you know, a piece of DNA being picked up on a glove or on a, on a, on a tweezer or something mm. and then being transferred, because it would appear that all of those that we've just detailed, there was some uh, possibility of direct contact, either with the scientist or, in this one case, the the, the proximity of the cases being worked on in the lab would not allow that to happen. But um, Mr. Jovic has raised it. Um, Your estimable colleague, Shane Brennan, raised it very um, uh, floridly the other week that, that this happens. We know this now happens. And we haven't even got to the fibres yet. I mean, don't get me started there because <laughs> all those all those <laughs> possibilities of contamination of fibres dropping, of hairs dropping and things, which we know Mr. Jovic raised quite extensively during the um, cross-examinations about the post-mortems and things, um, you know, that's all that's all to come as well. So, yeah, look, it's not been a good week for Pathways. You, uh, you, you, can, you can dress it up as much as you want. Mm. It's, not, it's not a good look for the supposed top lab in the state to to make these type of errors this many errors uh, on on this case in particular but uh, as Damien says any any case is important um, and a colleague of mine just emailed me to say well what's 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 to say this doesn't happen in cases that aren't this important or they haven't got this interest and mm. scrutiny on it well because Tim if we were talking about um, Mr. Webb before and his departure from Path West and that he was at the head of the, hel- the helm of the ship since mm. day one mm. 
Um, we all know, anyone that's been around for at least 25 years, like myself... And would, myself. And, and, and you, <laughs> Natalie, would, would know that... Um, the head of the ship, their practices filter down through the people that are working there. And it's not just a proposition anymore. What we're actually talking about is evidence in an extremely important case where we're seeing it. Because it's not just all Mr Webb, is it? There's other people involved. Oh, well, absolutely. absolutely. So, so you say, um, Tim, you say that it's a problem for Pathwest. I'll take one further. It's a problem for the people of Western Australia because, because here we are. Absolutely. Um, and at the, at the time Mr. West le- um, Mr. Webb left Pathwest, um, the Attorney General at the time, John Quigley, and he'd only just become Attorney General and this dropped in his lap, I think two weeks into his tenure, um, he, he called this a, a, an unprecedented disaster for the justice system. And, th- and this was... Mr. Mr. Webb leaving and all the ramifications of it, the you know the possible appeals and all that. So Mr. Quigley was in no doubt about how important Pathwest is to the processes of the justice system in this state, and if there are issues there, how uh, what the ramifications could be. Um, and he said that then. What he'll be saying this afternoon after he's read the copy on the West or listens to this tonight, as I'm sure he will, because uh, Mr. Mr. Quigley and I go back away. So, but I, I hope he's—I hope he is listening, and I hope he is taking notice because um, it, it's a problem. It's a big problem. You can only hope from here on forward that this is something that is rectified and doesn't happen in the future. Well, this should certainly um, buck the system a little bit if, mm. if that's if mm. um, but it doesn't change the fact that there are people working on this trial um, that have what they have in front of them so set aside the political problems mm. there, there's a man at, um, that, that's commissioned with making a decision about this trial at the end and he's just got what he's got in front of him hasn't he that, that's it so that's right so um, it, it must move forward and we must keep going towards um, asking the ultimate question: Is Mr. Edwards guilty yeah. or not guilty? That's right. And that, that's all we're heading towards. Yeah, that's the, you're absolutely right. You've got to bring it back to the point of the whole thing, um, and that 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 is the point. Um, I'll be very interested to when I Justice Hall eventually hands down his verdict and gives his written reasons, because that's one of the other um, bonuses, if you want to put it like that, of having a judge alone trial. He will give his reasons mm. in in very very fine detail, hundreds of pages, no doubt. And I'll be very interested when the DNA portion of that uh, uh, reasons he's handed down to see what he uh, see what he makes of it all. It is only going to get more interesting from here on in. Damien, before we go, we have a couple of questions from you. This one is from Susie. Can you please advise, irrespective of outcome of this case, would Mr Edwards' defence team have previously advised him to expect a lengthy prison sentence due to admission of assaults and rape? Um, good question, because it's often the thing that people are wondering about whether um, the term of imprisonment or what the penalty will be will have an impact on what people's decisions are um, whenever anyone uh, whenever a lawyer is giving advice to someone their penalty must be discussed so that would have been something that um, his counsel would have discussed with him and that would be something that he would have had some insight into going into his plea right and from Andrea I'm wondering whether the judge is allowed to confer with anyone his staff or a fellow judge or does his decision making process have to be entirely internal seems like a mammoth undertaking morally emotionally and intellectually super question great, great. yeah super great question, question Andrea um, so I'll answer that on two stages and and I'll do it like this so is um, the judge allowed to confer with anyone the answer is no the answer to that is he is commissioned with listening to the evidence that's given in the trial and referring back to um, the law and all the procedural 
um, rules that, that go along with any trial, and then he is to make his decision based on that. He's a human being, um, so this is part two. He's a human being, and I'm sure that he would walk back into his chambers at the end of a day, and he would, um, to some extent, um, reflect with his staff about how the day had gone. Um, what did you make of that? And and he's not necessarily asking. I wouldn't have thought. Obviously, I don't know because I'm not there. But I would have thought he'd go in there. What what do you make of that person? And and if one of his staff members said to him, "Oh, they were quite friendly," or they were, that's not something that he would take into his consideration. That's just something that people do at the end of the the day when working and going through what he would um, be going through. So it, it it the answer simply is that it is an entirely internal decision that he has to make based on what he's um, heard in the evidence and what the rules are. It is a mammoth undertaking. Um, you wouldn't, I don't, I, at the moment, I'm not sure that there's anybody in the state that's charged with any with, with any higher task. I mean, obviously there's a lot of political people that have got a lot of problems that they're trying to deal with, the budgets and all those kinds of things. But this um, job that Justice Hall is undertaking here is, to say the least, mammoth. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm sure the people of Western Australia you know, uh, sending moral support to him in, mm. in, in, especially with a week like this. I mean, it's not the you, we difficult. never want to we never want to rain down on anybody, but it's difficult because now he's got to factor this mm. into his decision making process. Good how question. long do you, how long do you think he could take to make a decision? As long as he wants. Could you give a guesstimate? I mean, is that how long's a piece of string? I know, but are we talking weeks, months? Oh, months. I mean, definitely months because well, he's going to have to he's going to write the reasons as well. It's not just a case of coming into court saying guilty or not guilty and going away again. Um, and that going through all the transcripts and all the evidence and all, certainly all the DNA evidence, all, even though he's sat through it all, he'll still have to go through it all again and take his time. So yeah, months definitely. If I was in his position, which I never would be, but if I what I would do is when I would. I would put a note on my desk that every night or every afternoon when I went back in there, something to remind me that the decision can't be made until all the evidence heard. So that's, that'd be your starting point at the end of the day, just to remember you've, you've got to get to the end of the trial before you can form a view. Um, Tim, what I would say is that potentially his decision may take hours at the end of the trial. He, oh. may, he might make a decision within hours because he, he strikes me as the kind of thinker that can process store and hold all of his a lot of people can't do that but I think that he is the kind of person that can actually make notes right. through his days and he, he can put them all categorise them and have them in, in a good good working order but what Tim's saying even if he did make the decision within, it, within, within hours I'm not saying that he will but he could um, it, would, it will take him an extended period of time to actually translate that into written decisions mm. for people to be able to use mm. in a useful manner moving forward and uh, I as long as it's going to be and as detailed as it's going to be, I cannot think of another judgment that's going to be so keenly anticipated yes. um, and possibly widely read, um, certainly in this state. Um, but, um, you know, I would guess in, interstate as well. Um, and, and, and hopefully some of our listeners overseas might take the time <laughs> to, um, to have a look at it as yeah. well when the day comes. Well, Tim and Nat, the thing with this judgment, the reason it'll become um, so widely read and it'll stand for a long time as a precedent is because of these issues with the DNA. Oh, all sorts well, that's of one of the reasons. Yeah. One Circumstantial of the reasons. evidence. I mean, the, 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 that's a, a real, always a real sort of um, moving feast in the justice system. There's so much of that to consider, particularly in Sarah's case. Um, uh, the similarities between the cases. How is he going to? How is he going to draw those 
comparisons um, and how far is he going to go in drawing those comparisons you've got the, all the living witness stuff and the screams which is all again circumstantial things um, there's the actual sentence for the rape and the the, 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 the breaking at Huntingdale which a lot of people are going to be interested in that too he's got to come up with a number there uh, yeah it's as Damien said it's a, it's just a mammoth undertaking um, and we, we talked about trust I think I, I, you know, I, I think the WA pe- um, public can trust Justice Hall to do this properly and, and absolutely. And well. I agree. And I think you're right, Damien. I think at the end of the day, either way, we all wish him well on this journey because <laughs> it is the toughest job anywhere right now. <laughs> Well, thank you both very much for your time. That wraps up week 12. We have a public holiday here in Western Australia on Monday, so no court, but we will be recording a bonus episode. That's with Tim and Alison, and they're going to chat to us about what it's like doing their jobs and the things you don't know about being a court reporter. So look out for that bonus episode on Monday, and we'll be back next week for week 13 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.